Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. Some of the best fiction is inspired by fact. So on today's podcast, we're joined by author and journalist Robert Delaney. We discuss his new book, The Wounded Muse, which is set in pre-Olympic China, and we take a look at the political issues that inspired that book. I hope you enjoy this episode. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Robert, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be talking to you. It's great to have you here. Um, Just for the benefit of our audience who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, I've been uh, a correspondent in uh, China, working in China for for several years, or I had been. Um, Those were uh, about 11 years altogether between the years of 1992 and the very end of 2006. So it sort of um, it represented a large chunk of uh, my career uh, as a journalist. And during that time, uh, I was working for Dow Jones Newswires and also um, uh, Bloomberg News. Excellent. And uh, and what are you up to at the moment? Uh, I left journalism for a few years after I left China and uh, wound up going back to school. I then wound up in marketing and PR for a couple of years, and then an opportunity came for me to work as the U.S. correspondent for the South China Morning Post out of the U.S., uh, based in New York, uh, where, I, uh, where I'm working now. Yeah. And uh, that's what I've been doing for about the past year and a half. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, you've written this fantastic novel called The Wounded Muse. Can you tell us a little bit about what the the book's about? Uh, Well, first, thanks for that description. I I appreciate it. Um, The book is is about, it's based on actual events, but I ended up, uh, my decision was to make it more, uh, to fictionalize it and uh, just to bring up the drama a bit. Uh, but the uh, the key kind of inciting event is the disappearance of a documentary filmmaker, uh, and uh, this is a mainland Chinese uh, person who moved back to China from the U.S. and was working on a project that the government didn't like. He disappears, and then it's his friends or his social circle around him have to figure out what to do, and that's that's the primary uh, conflict. And what was it that sort of drew you to writing this story in particular? I think. All of the years that I was in China, I had been toying with the idea of writing, and uh, this this event when when my friend did uh, disappear, um, it's it kind of became obvious that this would be, um, well, it might sound insensitive to say a great peg, uh, because at the time nothing seemed very great about it. But uh, afterwards, after after the situation was more or less resolved, uh, I just thought that it was a, it, it would be a great, a great way to uh, it would be a great peg for a story about what's going on in China, and it it, it served to to give me something to uh, to around which I could weave this story of of people living in Beijing and living through this this incredible economic tra- and physical transformation, and how it sort of a, how it affect their psychology. And, um, and how how it affected their lives. Yeah, and the the kind of the backdrop to this book is set before the two thousand eight Olympics, isn't it? And um, in in the um, book, one of the key things that uh, that the protagonist is investigating is the redevelopment of housing prior to the Olympics, and this kind of situation where buildings are kind of marked for demolition, and residents are kind of forced out of their own homes. Um, can you just talk to us a bit about this? Sure. Well, a lot of Beijing was built uh, during uh, or, or following the uh, following 1949 after the the revolution. Mm. So uh, at that time there was a lot of worker what they call work unit housing, and it's very nondescript kind of um, uh, housing that often didn't have uh, good plumbing. Uh, the heat was not very good, 
And they're just ugly buildings. And, and I think the, the Beijing government, obviously, they wanted to put the best face forward for Beijing because the, the, the Olympics were going to be such, uh, you know, uh, I guess a kind of a, like a coming out party, if, if you will, in terms of China's uh, emergence. And uh, it was very important for the Chinese to have the, the, the to have the city presentable. So, uh, and these, this sort of housing just wasn't working in terms of the image that they wanted. So, um, so they they just embarked on as they had been doing for quite a while leading up to the Olympics. Uh, they had been uh, demolishing large uh, neighbor large tracts of these uh, neighborhoods and replacing them with more mark, market oriented modern. Uh, buildings, not only residential, but in some areas closer into the center, uh, really just hotels, uh, office buildings, things like that. Things that are good for the city in one respect, but not so good for the city in, in another respect. And what happened to the kind of the residents of the building that was being demolished? Uh, well, they were, uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not like they publicized the details, but from what I gathered and what I'd heard was that uh, residents were given a subsidy and they were given then either assigned or given preferential treatment along with their subsidy to move into these uh, these very uh, expansive uh, residential housing projects that were moving outside of the like outside of the, the fifth ring. Uh, Beijing is sort of all centered around these uh, these ring roads, and so uh, they were they were kind of pushed much further out. And to be fair, a lot of Beijing residents were okay with this because they were getting some financial help um, for to live in a more modern uh, a home, uh, but not all of them liked that. It was, it, it, there, there was a community, of course, that had developed in, in these sorts of uh, housing projects over the decades. It, as they did that, it, the reactions were different uh, because everyone is in a different situation financially and everyone was in a different uh, situation philosophically about what was happening. Uh, but regardless of, uh, regardless of how they felt about it, it was going to get done because that's just, that was the, the as you know, uh, China is a very top-down kind of place where there isn't any discussion about what's going to happen and ultimately everyone has to go. Yeah, I remember in your book, I think the because the residents, am I right in thinking they were just they were only notified by a kind of marking that was placed on the building? Is that right? Yes, uh, there's a um, uh, there's a character uh, that's that stands for demolition, and you would just kind of walk wake up one day, and maybe you're on your way to work, and or I was on my way to work, and then I would see, okay, there's the character spray painted all over this this set of buildings uh, in red, and that just meant that, uh, okay, well, <laughs> I guess in the next month or two, maybe three, I'm not sure, uh, they're all going to disappear. Um, and uh, hmm, I wonder what's going up next. And of course, it's going to be a, some kind of mixed-use mixed, mixed use development, uh, office buildings, residential, uh, commercial, luxury, you know, if it's if it's luxury brands, if you're closer into the center of the city. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if you live there, it's not a great thing to wake up to, is it? As you leave your house in the morning to see it's being going to be demolished. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, again, this is sort of working at housing. So as a foreigner, some foreigners could live there, but I, it, it was difficult uh, to, to get that kind of housing because it was already occupied. Yeah. So it, it's hard to know exactly what people were thinking when they woke up and, you know, walked out of the house and saw the character and thought, uh, okay, well, I guess, I guess we're getting. Uh, they they may have they may have been given the heads up before the characters were were spray painted, uh, perhaps. But in any case, I think everyone sort of understood that this means that meant that they were they were relocating. Yeah, yeah, it's quite. It feels quite dramatic. I must admit, I wouldn't be too thrilled if that happened to my place, <laughs> unless I got a better place yeah. afterwards. But um, <laughs> yeah, but there we go. Well, I mean, yeah. again, some some were so, some were unhappy about it, and mm. there were occasional demonstrations that would uh, th that would pop up uh, kind of surreptitiously and kind of um, disperse uh, kind of quickly, but. Mm. You know, it's as as I said. It, it you know, to be fair, some some people were perfectly fine, were perfectly happy to move into a new building that had proper heat, uh, proper plumbing, and and air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's maybe a, it's a silly question. You kind of touched upon it. Why were the two thousand and eight Olympics so important for the Chinese government? I think it was because two thousand eight was maybe just seen as as the turning point where 
China had developed uh, uh, to the point where they felt that it was worth advertising uh, themselves as, uh, as as kind of having arrived and uh, and no longer being uh, a poor nation, um, having arrived sort of uh, culturally. Um, and it, it was it's just sort of a form of self-respect and a form of uh, face, I think, that, that the government wanted. Uh, they wanted more recognition that um, uh, the, that the government itself had had worked very hard to uh, to alleviate poverty in the country, um, to give uh, the to give many more people in the country uh, better economic opportunities, and this was the most obvious way to do it because when the uh, during the Olympics you've got the whole world watching. And so to give the, an international audience both those arriving in the country to, to watch the Olympics themselves and also those seeing it uh, play out on TV, uh, it was just it was sort of the perfect opportunity and the timing was right for, for China to put on this, uh, this, this, this display and this, this more. Uh, they wanted to show the world that, it was, uh, that they were a modern country and that they were um, a, a, a very dignified country. Yeah. And so coming back to your book for a moment, so your protagonist is a documentary filmmaker interviewing people about um, the sort of negative side of this uh, modernization. He must have really fallen out of favor with the government, which led to his detention, so to speak. Right. So um, the in in real life, the, the events that happened that I experienced, my friend was actually working on a different subject. And uh, the uh, the the idea to have him working on this was because there were a lot of, there was a lot of debate among uh, residents and as i mentioned there were occasionally uh, protests that would flare up and disperse quickly within beijing about this so it, i knew that there was a lot of concern about it and that some people in beijing wanted to do something about it and slow it down yeah. or at least uh, give have more of a say in how this development was done but despite all that none of these voices none of these views were ever really aired yeah so uh, so that's why it would have been whoever was trying to make a difference in this matter uh, really wouldn't have been uh, w- wouldn't have been able to be very visible in china yeah, what I like, I really like the um, the approach you take in your book with the kind of the different timelines. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Alex Garland's The Tesseract, and um, I really like that sort of style. Um, and I was wondering, if you, I was just going to ask you, just to, uh, out of curiosity, did you have any particular authors who inspired you to pursue writing a novel? You know, the funny thing about the novel is that it started off more as uh, a, a kind of. A, it was very descriptive and it was very uh, interior with the w- with the characters and it was very much um, t- t- there was a lot of dialogue among these different characters about how they felt about uh, China and its development with different perspe- perspectives and when I shopped it around to uh, to publishers and I got feedback the <laughs> the, the feedback was this needs to be more dramatic we need more suspense so that's when I decided it was no longer going to be a piece of creative nonfiction, and it was going to be um, it was it was just going to be more more of a thriller. So uh, and I to be honest, I I wasn't I I'm not an avid reader of thrillers, so uh, I kind of had to think about what I had seen in in films um, because I didn't read a lot because it's just not my tendency to read thrillers. And I thought a lot about uh, there was uh, one movie, in fact, that really kind of inspired me. It's uh, it was came out in 2006. It's called the uh, The Lives of Others. Oh yeah, great film. Yeah, a, a German film, and uh, it's it's the same idea. It's uh, the government uh, kind of watching and uh, these these dissident characters who are trying to uh, uh, to navigate through that. And so a lot of the ideas that came out of that movie kind of inspired me to uh to bring into the book yeah now you've said that i can see that actually yeah especially with the um the sort of surveillance theme that's kind of going on in the background yeah like what we're doing connect with us on twitter at dry cleaner cast support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today 
go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. I'd like to paint a picture for us a bit about Chinese politics. And I was wondering if it's possible, um, if you could give us a sort of dummy's guide to Chinese politics, like how the government is sort of structured and how it sort of came to be that way. China, right after the revolution, well, leading up to and then right after the revolution, the, the Chinese politics was pretty much just dominated by one person. It was Mao Zedong. Um, and he also, of course, had uh, some of his, uh, his, his aides uh, like Zhou Enlai. But it was predominantly Mao Zedong and what he wanted. And um, that led to, by the late 50s, there was the Great Leap Forward, uh, which led to a terrible famine. Uh, and then as, as a res- after several years of that, uh, I think uh, Mao Zedong felt like he was possibly becoming more vulnerable. So he let loose the Cultural Revolution, uh, which was um, a very traumatic and chaotic time uh, for, uh, uh, for the Chinese, uh, which sort of led the country, both the, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution really led the country backward in time for, uh, for a couple of decades. So it, wasn't, it was when, uh, after uh, Mao uh, passed away, you had the emergence of Deng Xiaoping uh, in the late who set forth the um, a period of economic reform. And what, uh, what Deng Xiaoping did was he changed the constitution so that the uh, government would no longer be, uh, they would no longer allow this sort of one person rule, uh, which because he, he saw the kind of chaos that that can, uh, that, 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 that can cause. And so the government became more of a lead by committee uh, that would be sort of the central committee uh, of uh, in in the Politburo, and uh, that led to uh, this period of tremendous economic growth. Uh, so you had it was not only economic growth, but also there was sort of this vacillation between uh, reform uh, that that is uh, all sorts of reform, political reform along with the uh, economic reform. Um, it led to uh, a lot more uh, freedom for the Chinese people in terms of their their choices. Uh, and and ability to make money. Um, so uh, that and and that was really the case. Of course, you you had the the blip of the the um, the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. Um, there was a, that, that was a obviously a chaotic period. But by and large, from the late 1970s all the way up until the uh, really around the time of the Olympics. You had this uh, general trend of opening up and allowing more ideas uh, to filter in, allow more, allowing more debate among academics and uh, government officials about uh, how much uh, how much the ideas of uh, Western liberal democracies China could accept or, or adopt. And uh, it, but it really things started to things have started to change in recent years. Things have started to turn a little bit back towards the uh, the orientation of the the time of Mao Zedong. You've got Xi Jinping as president now. Now I, I'm not going to suggest at all that that it has completely gone back to that period. Uh, but you do have more of a tightening up about what you can say, about what Chinese people are exposed to in the media. You have the uh, there's much more the 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 the, the great uh, fire the great China firewall around the internet is mu- it's much tighter than it was 10 years ago. So uh, so we're kind of in this period now where I think uh, a lot of the, I, I think the jury is out on where this is going, whether or not it will continue to move in this direction or. Is this just part of the vacillation that China's been going through for the past 30 years or so? Uh, so, uh, so that's kind of where it stands at the moment. Uh, we've got a, a government that is all along it's been one-party rule. However, during the past 30 years, that one-party rule has actually accommodated different viewpoints. Uh, although over the past couple of years, those viewpoints are not as are not allowed to be as diverse as they had been. Uh, so, so now there's a lot of debate around whether or not it's going to stay where it is. It's going to continue going in the direction it's been in the past two years, or will it start to gradually swing back the way it has over the past 30 years? Mm-hmm. 
Can you just quickly describe how one-party rule kind of works to our listeners? Yes, it's one-party rule, but I think there's one example that, that really explains this well. I remember it was back in the late 90s when I was working in Shanghai, and Zhu um, uh, Rongji at the time, he was the premier, he was very much a reformer. He wanted to reform the state-owned enterprises, and he had a lot of power for many years. Yeah, and for some reason, his name was not appearing in the media. His his name was not appearing in any of the headlines in any of the state-owned newspapers for a period of I forget how long it was. But the stock markets in China started just plummeting every day. They start they kept going limit down, and it was because many people saw that the uh, it looked like the, the people expected that Zhu Rongzhong was going to be uh, Zhu Rongji was going to be purged. Mm. So after about a week of limit down um, losses on the stock market, all of a sudden, Jurongji, his name is appearing everywhere in state media. And I think that's an example of, and the reason I mention that is because uh, it, it's an example of how you have one party rule, okay, but there's, there is the, the, the government gets input from, it gets popular input. In this case, the input is really from the business community uh, the entrepreneurs and whatnot who are basically sending the signal, uh, you know, bet, you know, sell China and get the hell out. Mm. Um, and, and I think the government responded that way. So I guess the point I'm making is that in one party rule does not mean that there's only one, uh, one answer yeah. and, uh, and one direction that anyone's going to take. Do we know what kind of China's political goals and aims for the future are and what and how they're kind of pursuing them? Well, depending on who you're talking to, um, th- this is, there, there's a lot of debate around this right now mm. because, as you know, there's so much friction between China and the U.S. Yeah. at the moment. And also, there's uh, there, there's also a lot of friction between China and many other countries at this point. This is happening in Australia, and I think it's a reaction to. And in, in very very recently, China has been uh, ha- has really put itself out as having arrived economically and uh, quote taking the center stage in or taking center stage uh, in in the world. Um, and and that sort of I think led a lot of people to think that well China is really uh, expecting to become the dominant country uh, in the 21st century and for going forward for you know who knows how long. Uh, now that's caused uh, this is I think this has caused so many problems for the Chinese government and the Chinese foreign ministry in particular because there's now so much pushback. There's now uh, lawmakers, governments, policymakers in, in other countries that they have to deal with are now coming up with uh, measures to sort of limit investment, to uh, limit the amount of participation that Chinese students are, are allowed in their countries. And so there's a, there, there really is a reassessment within the, the halls of power in Beijing now to, uh, to, to kind of re, um, to edit their message a bit. And to 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 say no, they're when they say center stage, they're talking about center stage along with many other powerful countries. They're not saying center stage as in uh, we are uh, we are the middle kingdom again. Of course, many people might know the the name for China is Zhongguo, which means uh, middle kingdom, and uh, I think it's. I think it's that middle kingdom uh, mentality that has uh, that, that that is both in China and outside of China for people who are who are aware of it that are that have this concern that China wants to just simply reassume the position they had before colonial imperialism, where China really ha- China was the largest economy in the world and. I think at, at one point, I'm not sure which century it was. Again, it would have been before um, European colonialism. China's the, the the world. China accounted for something like 40 to 45 percent of the world's economic output, and that had been the case for for centuries. So, um, and and really, everyone else was kind of just many other countries uh, or and kingdoms were kind of vassal states to China. And uh, so I think the, the concern is that China expects to reassume that position. Um, now, how many people in the senior leadership in China sort of have this goal? I don't know. Um, uh, you, 
if you, the official line is that no one, no one in China, no one in the government thinks that that's realistic mm. anymore. Mm. Um, but then again, uh, th- there are quite a few moves that China's making that have given uh, many policymakers in the West and other countries the impression that that's what they're intending to do. Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's no shortage of books sort of talking about uh, the idea that China might wants to become the sort of number one dominant superpower. Right, right. And and as for whether they whether they're intending to do that, uh, is is not clear. Uh, but you know, it's certainly in in my position, I've talked to some uh, members of the uh, foreign uh, foreign ministry officials. Who say that? Uh, who say? And I think very genuinely, they say this is this is not a realistic thing in in the 21st century. It's not realistic for China to expect to be in that position again. Uh, so I, you know, I I, I think it's I, I think there's a bit of interplay within the government about about what their ambitions sh- should be. Can you just talk to us a bit about U.S. and Chinese relations today? Because you mentioned before, there's a lot of, sort of back and forth going on at the moment. Yeah, I would say U.S.-China relations today are, they're, they're really on the cusp of being as bad as they have ever been uh, since, the, since the reestablishment of diplomatic relations or the establishment of dip- diplomatic relations in 1979 between <coughs> Washington and Beijing. And um, there's it, it, it's not clear when it's not clear when or how they will pull back or the two sides will pull back from the situation there is because at the moment there's really there there's no dialogue um, to to uh, to to end the trade war. Uh, I mean, as you know, they have uh, the 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 U.S. side uh, put punitive tariffs on a huge portion of Chinese imports. China responded in kind. Uh, there's another set of uh, tariffs that are going into effect in about a week's time, and China will has announced uh, further tariffs. So we're uh, the, the U.S. and China are officially in a trade war. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot more confrontation about what China's military is doing in the South China and the East China Sea. Uh, and they are. Um, Whereas China had said you know, five years ago, the activity that they were doing around these atolls and these reefs in the South China Sea, they said it was really just to support fishing operations and it was not anything about the military. Well, now they are. There are military. There is military equipment being installed on these atolls, and of course, the, the U.S. government, the Pentagon, uh, is uh, is is reacting to this. So, um, uh, in a word, it's not good <laughs> at the moment. And um, the, the diplomats on both sides uh, don't re- seem to be uh, at, uh, or diplomatic efforts seem to have stalled uh, for the moment. And it's not clear when they're going to uh, figure out a, a way out of this. Well, let's let's move into hopefully a more slightly positive thing. I don't know, um, life in China today, because um, I wanted to get a bit more of an idea of what daily life is like in China. Um, so it's a bit of a broad question, but um, can you kind of paint us a picture of how life, uh, or sort of how society is divided up, what's kind of on people's minds, and what kind of goals people are pursuing, and you know, sort of just general life in China today? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, I mean, one thing just to uh, just uh, just to point out that I. I was working in China up until the end of 2006, so yeah. uh, I haven't lived there uh, since uh, uh, for about 12 years. But I, I have had a couple of trips back since then. Uh, I've uh, I obviously I keep in touch with friends there. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you're if you're talking about um, sort of your your average mainland Chinese, I think I, I don't think much has changed though in in the past uh, 12 years. Uh, it's really, I think there's an overall sense among Chinese people that they're very aware that the country had been set back several decades by what had happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. So there's, uh, there's just this, this general, um, uh, I think, uh, what's the word? Uh, everyone's kind of in pursuit of their, um, a, a better lot, uh, as it were. Uh, they're having... Uh, being able to own a home, uh, ideally being able to own a car, uh, these things are all very important. And everyone is, it, it does kind of feel like 
everyone is in a race and everyone is stressed out in trying to make sure that they secure their uh, their economic situation. And I think um, th- th- there's a couple of reasons behind that. Number one, as I mentioned, everyone's aware of how far China had fallen behind during that period that they've pulled out of now. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, while while the government has reformed enough to uh, to give people much more economic freedom, more than they had had in um, not only the the years since the revolution, but even before then, um, there even though they have this freedom, they they, they don't have the political freedoms uh, that uh, that so, that many people have in in other uh, in other countries. So I. Th- I think uh, most Chinese would say that their uh, securing their economic situation is kind of is is crucial uh, for uh, in in order to uh, in order to survive. And because you've got 1.4 billion people all kind of in this race, uh, the, the the feeling in China is uh, at least when I was living there, it's is just um how do i say it can be kind of exhausting <laughs> i think and and, and i think uh, people uh, are are quite have I, I don't think the chinese are are uh are uh, none of them want to go back to the 70s and, and the 60s so this is this is certainly a much better situation than what they were living through then but at the same time i just sort of just in general I, people people seem kind of well, they seem on the one hand they seem optimistic, but on the other hand they seem a little bit exhausted, also. Yeah, and um, what was it that drew your interest to China? Uh, I I was my interest in China was probably because maybe started when I was in university and uh, I was I took a kung fu class and I was I was so I I had gotten into that so much that. I decided when I was I was going to do an independent study in the American Studies Department about uh, martial arts in America. So um, when I started doing that, of course, my independent study advisor said, uh, "Well, if you're going to do an uh, independent study about martial arts in America, you need to understand the uh, the origins of the martial arts or the origins of kung fu." So that kind of that was my that was my entree into uh, into China. And uh, the, the more I studied about it, the more fascinated I was. And then, of course, there was the, um, there was the student protest of 1989 in Tiananmen Square that I just found, and th- that just really put the country in kind of vivid focus for me. And uh, I think the, the, the juxtaposition of this tremendously um, beautiful philosophy uh, behind Kung Fu and uh, also having to learn about the other Theological traditions about China, um, Taoism, um, Confucianism, Buddhism—that uh, those ideas juxtaposed against what had happened in 1989 just made me think. I, I just need to—I need to go there. I need to understand what's going on. And so it was at that point when I asked the uh, the grandmaster of the Kung Fu studio where I was. Um, he and he managed. He worked some connection to get me into uh, a. a uh, a university in uh, Anhui province, uh, which is uh, a bit further inland. It's more rural. Uh, it's kind of poor. At the time, it was kind of poor in a city called Wuhu, which whenever I tell people that, I always get a laugh. Yes, I studied Chinese in Wuhu. Uh, so uh, so uh, that was it. It was just really this broad sweep of this tremendous history, this tremendous culture, um, these um, uh, these belief systems and these philosophical systems that I thought were so interesting um, that kind of led me to China, uh, all, all of those things, and then how how does it turn out to become a communist country? Uh, I just kind of wanted to figure all of that out. Yeah, because it's a country with such rich history that sort of um, I wonder, if, you know, communism sort of just pushed it to the side, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I think it's that's one of the sad things. I mean, I mean, I don't, I, I obviously the, China today is very different from uh, from the. The, the political system that I feel comfortable living in, mm. uh, but despite that, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't begrudge Chinese for the the system that they're living in. Uh, and at the end of the day, there are 1.4 billion Chinese people. I always say this: 
1.4 billion Chinese people. It's up to them to decide what sort of political system they want to live in. Yeah. If this is if this, if they're happy with this, uh, then then this is fine. Um, so that's uh, I I would just say that's uh, I I find all of this interesting how all of it comes together, the history, the uh, the ideas, the art, the culture. Mm. Uh, how did, how does it all end up where where it is now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was I was talking to a friend who just come back from China recently, and we ended up um, usually because most of my topics end up talking about espionage and what have you. Uh, we end up talking about social media in China because you mentioned it before about the um, I can't remember how you described it was it the Great Firewall of China is that what they call it? Um, yeah. And and yeah. Um, and we were talking about social media, and he was showing me this app called WeChat where it seems to be a portal for everything and it all goes through this app which obviously leads to um you know it, it means things can be filtered but also from my understanding things can be monitored as well and he was telling me about this thing called social credit um could you are you familiar with uh social credit and if you are can you i, tell I am it? yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with social credit uh and and what i would say is that there are many different opinions about what it is and uh how whether or not it's a danger. Uh, some some Chinese friends have said, "Look, this is because there are. Uh, th- th- this is to deal with with things like people who we've all seen YouTube videos of uh, of Chinese tourists acting badly, right? You, you see, they they sort of end up going viral. I think this is partly this is a response by the government to uh, to to remind uh, Chinese people that when they they go abroad they uh, there, there's a certain manner in which they need to conduct themselves and uh, I mean I think what people need to keep in mind is that China has gone from real agricultural country to being uh, much closer to a first world country and a wealthy country in such a short period of time and uh, i mean it's, it's much like in the 19 you know there's the term the ugly american right and that's that comes from americans kind of built up wealth very quickly in the 20th century and so you had them going abroad and you had americans going to europe and of course french and germans would kind of roll their eyes at the way americans acted because it was very different and i think it's, this is really just kind of the same situation playing out with chinese so to go back to the question about social credit I think the government's very aware of this, and they want to. They they want a way to uh, make sure that people are uh, behaving in a way that's consistent with the stature that they they see the country has achieved. So so there's that. Uh, but others, of course, point out that uh, um, there's also a financial component. Obviously, if you're not managing your money uh, well, if you're if you're constantly going into bankruptcy, there has to be some kind of repercussion and there has to be some kind of uh, uh, stick and a carrot to make sure that people are minding their, uh, their, their, their financial situations properly. So there's all of that, which many Chinese people would, would say, well, they don't have a problem with, with making, uh, with, with, with this other system that is an extra measure to, to make Chinese more, uh, act more responsibly. But then the question comes in, how much does the content that people are posting on social media, how much is this coming into play when it comes, when it comes to determining their social credit score? And this is the big question, I think, that, that people are wrestling with. Because it's, as far as I know, I'm not there, so I'm not, an, I'm not too much of an expert on this either. But uh, I think it's not very clear at this point how much of your social credit is tied to things like you know disruptive behavior, um, of financial irresponsibility, um, and how much of it is tied to what what, what you're thinking and, and what you're expressing politically. Um, it's it's just it, it's it's not clear at this point, and I think the concern is that there there's going to that that the system will if it's not already perhaps will take too much of the latter into account. In, uh, in determining your social credit score, and how much uh, you know, how much does your social credit? If you slip up somewhere where you're not really aware of, of of whether or not you stepped over a line politically, how much does that damage? Does that permanently damage you in terms of your career or, or other aspects? It's not clear. You know, it's being debated. No, and I know there's a there was a case I was just looking into yesterday. 
um, where a gentleman who whose name Zhang was had posted um, 274 posts on social media between 2010 and 2015 um, on I think on Twitter and WeChat that were um, considered by the government as attacks and smears against the government and apparently this earned him 15 years in prison. Um, just based on his social media posts, which is pretty, pretty dramatic. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of draconian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's I would say. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, it, it, and it's hard to know. Is is this an aberration? Is this, uh, it, or is this something that's being applied more broadly? And are there many, many more cases of this mm. that were that are not coming to light? I I don't know. It's just hard to tell, yeah. especially because I, I'm not living there these days. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure if, if it is becoming common, we probably will hear more over time, won't we? One question I was going to ask you, but um, about it was about sort of self-censorship and whether that's becoming a common practice in China. I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on that. Um, self-censorship, I, I mean, most Chinese uh, understand the, the, the parameters of this, system they live in mm. uh and i i think they they have a good sense of uh of of where the boundaries are mm. so uh so i i think uh in many ways uh chinese uh well yeah i mean many chinese will will self-censor in that they're not going to be as outspoken on social media as you would see uh people in the u.s or the uk or or in many other um uh, Western uh, liberal democracies, for sure, they're, they the Chinese will be more conservative about about expressing their views. So, so there is self censorship on that level. But I think a lot of people who aren't who are not not familiar with China would be surprised at the the level of openness that Chinese will um, uh, will express amongst themselves. So uh, whether whether it's just sort of sitting out in front of the, the sh- their their shop, uh, t- talking to uh, talking to their neighbors. It's no longer the country where they've got pe- where er- where everyone's spying on everyone else, making sure you're not allowed to, making sure you're not saying this or not saying that. But all of the years that I'd lived there, uh, I was m- more surprised at how open and expressive people were when they were just sitting next to you talking about the government um, than I was surprised by how much they would they would censor themselves. Yeah, yeah, because I know in um, in your book, uh, the intelligence services sort of play a, a- background role monitoring the activities of your protagonist uh, is it quang and um yeah sorry and um one thing i was quite interested was is it common for the chinese authorities to to step in and tell journalists not to pursue a topic for a story because there's actually a particular scene in your book where um where he's interviewing um a gentleman about um, sort of an old political story and his, his and the place he's actually recording the interview has actually been bugged yes uh, well, I, I would say this when I was uh, most of I had always done I was working for financial newswires. I was working for Dow Jones mm. uh, and I was also working for Bloomberg when I was in China. So I was always covering macroeconomic policy. I was covering currency issues. I was covering these la- large listed companies and what they were doing. So I wasn't really monitored. But I, I do remember once there there was a. Uh, one of the guys in our bureau who covered uh, politics in China, uh, he was on vacation, so I kind of stepped in to do this one story about Taiwan, and I was uh, I was contacting uh, a U.S. Uh, diplomat, or I was calling, I had to call a U.S. diplomat because who had recently been in Taiwan just to find out, okay, well, what did you guys talk about? What was the meeting about? And in the middle of the conversation, the phone just, the line just cut off. <laughs> so, you know, and I just sort of thought, well, I guess I'm not doing that story. <laughs> Uh, I mean that was that, that that happened to me all at once in all the years that I lived there. Mm. But I think it it just sort of showed that there, uh, you know, the Chinese government doesn't get into the lives of of most people there. Um, but of course, the foreign media there obviously they're very sensitive about what the foreign media and what foreign journalists in China are doing. So they do keep tabs on them. Um, but uh, you know, I would say on, on the other hand, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that the U.S. government keeps tabs on. Uh, re- reporters at the Chinese state-owned media who are working in the U.S. Um, you know, who, who is is one more uh, more invasive than the other? I'm mm-hmm. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, for sure, I know so, uh, some of my friends who were reporters in China who were covering uh, politics, who would tell me stories about how they would they would get messages from time to time 
just from bumping into people on the street. I, I know in one case, uh, this one friend of mine who worked for a foreign newswire who said that she was a little bit spooked because she was on her way to an interview and then someone just intercepted her and said, someone in just plain clothes saying, you, you really, you probably don't want to do this interview. Um, so, so, so that sort of thing would play out uh, with, uh, with in, uh, among, among foreign reporters. Uh, but it wasn't, it's not, you know, it was never, it was just never very overt. No. And that, that, you know, that case was an exception, but, you know, there's just a handful of these cases that I was aware of when I was living and working there as, as a journalist. And, and I didn't, I, so I didn't see interference a whole lot. No, no. Cause there's, um, certainly in the book, there's a theme of, um, cause there's, uh, there's a character who, um, has spoken to someone in a bar and she's given a recording of that conversation later on um and, yes. and things like that was that based on truth or was that just a bit of um <laughs> that was based on that that was based on an actual event wow. yes that was based on uh this is based on a story that was uh that, that kind of made the rounds among foreign journalists in beijing there's another uh scene um where uh where two guys are in a hotel room and then there's a there's a flash that comes from behind the mirror uh, because then, and obviously someone, someone had taken a photo and was planning to use it as blackmail. That actually comes directly from a story of a friend of mine who was a diplomat for, uh, for a European country. And he was in Beijing as uh, part of uh, very sensitive negotiations with the Chinese government. Um, Now this, now that, uh, that event was, goes back to 1995 uh, as for whether or not they uh, th- that sort of that sort of thing still happens uh, here in in you know 2018, I don't know. I, I think there are um, more. I, I I think the technology has has become better, and maybe you wouldn't see that now. Uh, but but that that incident uh, comes directly from a story uh, of, a, of a friend of mine. We're just coming close to wrapping up now. So what do you think the future holds for Western and Chinese relations? Well, I'm trying to be an optimist about this uh, because, and, and the reason that, I mean, I think there's a lot of reason for pessimism and concern about the, the situation that China face off with the West at, at the moment um, is in. Uh, but the reason that I would be, I would sort of side on, I would side with uh, optimism is just because uh, China has integrated itself economically with the West so deeply that um, the I, I think if uh, if if China and the U.S. and if China and the and the West in general don't figure out a way to accommodate each other, uh, you're really talking about going uh, China having to go back to uh, much closer to the days. That, uh, that that people uh, remember uh, where where no really days of um, uh, of chaos and days of uh, uh, I mean uncertainty. Um, I just don't think Chinese uh, mainland Chinese people in general want to go back there. I I think they've seen uh, the benefits. I I think they appreciate the benefits of integration with the rest of the world. And I don't think that they want, I think Chinese people in general do not want to go back to a position where uh, they're more isolated. Uh, and, and I guess on, on the part of the West, I, 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 I don't think that, uh, that, that the West wants this conflict uh, with China either. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, what can I say? It's just a feeling I have. <laughs> and, and maybe I'll, be proven to be wrong, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, but I, I would lay my money on sort of a, uh, a an overall uh, general accommodation uh, between China and the West, simply because the world is so integrated, and pulling that integration apart would would cause uh, too much would cause more 
uh, would cause more uncertainty than most people uh, are willing to uh, to accept. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work and your book? Uh, well, uh, the book is uh, is available for pre-order on Amazon. So uh, if you just um, you can just uh, Google Robert Delaney, The Wounded Muse, uh, which is the title of the book, uh, and you'll you'll find it on on Amazon. Um, it's uh, it's being published by a small Canadian uh, publishing house called Mosaic Press. Uh, so uh, in Canada, it should be uh, more widely available, sort of on the bookshelves, I hope. Um, and then uh, my Twitter handle, uh, which is mostly my work uh, as, as a journalist, uh, is at uh, R.F. Delaney. So that's at R-F-D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. Um, and uh, that's and, and then if uh, if you wanted to follow uh, what I'm writing, you can uh, you know just look uh, uh, South China Morning Post, Robert Delaney, and my stuff will come up. Uh, so that's probably the best way to follow me. Excellent. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, great. Uh, Chris, thanks very much. I, I really appreciate your interest in the book, and uh, I appreciate all of your questions. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, so thank you for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.